Hello everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Gaming in the Wild, a video games podcast about games from the artistic, creative side of the tracks, from indie to AAA. My name's John, I'm your host, and I'm recording on a Friday evening in Reykjavik, a sunny Friday evening, with a beautiful pink sunset visible in all of the windows all around me. It's a really beautiful evening. Um, And it's been quite an action-packed week, actually. Um, There have been loads of indie games that I've been looking forward to for a while, have either had embargoes dropped or have released, or both, Um, and it's been really interesting watching the responses to them. I always look forward to seeing where the critics come down on games. I love critical consensus. Um, And so, let's run through a few of those. Um, Chia, the tropical exploration game set in uh, New Caledonia off the coast of Australia, came out. Um, That one came down in the 80s on Metacritic, around 80. Um, Interesting takes on that one. I think we've all been watching that game since the uh, reveal trailer, or at least since the the trailer that put it into the the mainstream consciousness last year. Um, That's the game where you jump between different animals and inanimate objects um, as a young girl, um, who can soul jump, I think they call it. Um, There's been some interesting takes on Chia. I haven't played it myself. I have it downloaded and ready to go. Um, one of the things that surprised me about some of the, the chat about Chia is that it turns out that it has combat in it. Um, there was an interesting interview about Chia on the MinMax channel in which uh, Ben Hansen, the host of that show, was asking about Wind Waker and asking about 3D Zelda as an inspiration for Chia. And the, the developer, one of the lead developers, interestingly, said that actually he was more interested in some of the game design around early Grand Theft Auto games, which is uh, not something, it was a big surprise to me, and I think a big surprise to everyone um, to hear Grand Theft Auto brought up in that context. Um, But I was listening to a podcast, and uh, Jill Grote, who is the indie informer, said that the game actually has some combat in it. That's not something I was expecting at all. I think you can turn yourself into a firebomb and you have to take out these bandit camps. Really not what I was expecting from Chia. So I am very interested to get into Chia um, to do some exploration and to uh, try out this, this unexpected twist in the gameplay. Another indie game that came out this week was Storyteller, which is out for PC and Switch. This is the game where you're looking down at something that looks a little bit like a comic book. It has panes and panels, and you can drag different elements into the panes and panels to uh, tune the outcomes of the stories in interesting ways. Um, I had no idea that Storyteller has been in development for quite as long as it has. It turns out that as far back as 2009, um, Storyteller was being shown a little. It won uh, one of the awards at the IGF uh, the GDC Awards for, um, what's it called again? It's Independent Games Festival, I think it stands for. So it's been around the block and it's been in and out of development. It's had a, a storied cycle of development. It finally came out this week, published by Annapurna Interactive. Um, the reviews have been lukewarm on Storyteller, but some of the main criticisms of it being a little easy and a little short, I don't know, that doesn't put me off too much. I'm really up for uh, unchallenging, uh, discreet, short experiences, especially on the Switch. 
Um, I think that the premise of Storyteller is very neat and the art style is very neat. So I'm looking forward to playing that one. I think I'll play it this weekend and I'll come to you with a review of that one in the near future too. Um, Another much anticipated indie that came out this week was Have a Nice Death, the Metroidvania, where you play as death, but things are not well in the underworld. It's got a really nice 2D art style to it. And that one has come out to some uh, good reviews. It's around 83 on Metacritic right now. Um, So that's another one that I'm looking forward to tucking into as well. So that's three major indies that were on my uh, watch list this year that have all come out this week. Um, But the main game that I'm going to talk about this week is actually the one that has come out at the top of the pile, especially in terms of the critical reception. It is the small open world uh, Lovecraftian fishing game where you take a little bobbing boat out onto the ocean um, in a place, an archipelago, where things have gone a little strange or, or very strange as it turns out. I've actually been glued to this game for weeks. I've been taking my time with it. I think because one of the things that I think really helps me to review games on the podcast is if if they're fresh in my mind. Um, and with the Dredge review copies coming a whole three weeks before we were allowed to talk about it. Um, and it's not a long game. It is quite a short game. And so I was worried about just finishing it too quickly and then um, having to scour back through my memories and not quite being as fresh about the game as I like to be. So I did take my time with it. I took a week off of it and decided to finish the last um, quarter of the map just before I talked about it. I did that yesterday and it was really nice to have that extra time just to let the game sink in a little bit. Um, This has been a very anticipated game um, widely but also very much so in the Gaming in the Wild Discord. I know a lot of people are waiting with bated breath for this one, no pun intended, although I have to say and with all of the accidental fishing puns about being hooked and waiting with bated breath and uh, having things on deck and all of that kind of stuff, you can expect me to be saying no pun intended um, quite a lot during this podcast, and it will only be true about half of the time, I'm afraid. There was also some news this week. The Independent Games Festival went down as part of GDC out on the west coast of the States. This is always one of the most interesting awards shows of the year to me. It focuses only on independent games. So it's a bit of a different selection to all of the um, the Ragnarok sweeping of the boards that we've seen so far in award season. Um, it's also interesting because um, games enter themselves and they have to pay like 75 bucks or something to enter. But then there is a panel of, um, or rather a nominating committee of 250 to 300 people. Um, and they include, according to the website, game designers, notable indie-friendly indie friendly video game journalists, and other individuals familiar with video game design. So you're getting quite an interesting filter of people uh, voting on who wins these awards, and so you get some quite interesting outcomes. Um, a couple of games that you will be familiar with if you're a regular listener one, um, The Forest Quartet, which I reviewed just a couple of weeks ago, um, that took home an award for excellence in audio, which was really nice to see. Um, there were some interesting nominees in that one as well. Uh, Paradise Marsh, which made my Games of the Year mentions, uh, was a really good contender here for my money. I had Disaster Peace making a beautiful generative soundtrack. Um, Tunic was also up for excellence in audio. It had a great soundtrack, that one. And We Are OFK, that game about a fictional band, was nominated too. Um, but it's really nice to see a little indie game like The Forest Quartet taking home an award. Um, excellence in Design went to The Case of the Golden 
Golden Idol. Um, this is a game that snuck onto lots of Games of the Year awards uh, last year that I haven't played it yet. It's a, a beautiful looking pixel art point and click detective game. I do have it. I downloaded it on Steam. Um, I think it was on deep sale at some point. So I did pick that one up and I'm looking forward to playing it. Um, Excellence Narrative went to Immortality. Um, really excited to see Immortality winning. Um, that was my game of the year last year. Uh, Norco was also up for that one. Citizen Sleeper 2. So that was a packed category this year. Um, Excellence in Visual Arts went to RPG Time, The Legend of Right. That was a game that I heard about from Brad over on the So Video Games podcast. I have picked that one up, and I can see why it won that award, actually. I've only played a little bit of it, but that's a really fun game where you're looking down at a desktop with squared paper, rulers, pencils, pencil sharpeners, um, staples and staplers, um, sheafs of different colored paper and stuff. Um, and it's a story about designing a tabletop game right there on the tabletop. Really, really visually interesting, really paper crafty. Great to see that one picking up an award too, because not a lot of people talked about RPG time. Um, but check it out on Switch if you're interested in the sounds of that one. It's it's something interesting. Um, the Nuovo Award went to Betrayal at Club Low. This is a bizarre looking um, a bizarre looking game. I don't really know how to describe that one. It's got a really strange uh, angular kind of polygonal style um, where you're looking at the outside of a club with railings and bouncers and lights and things like that. You have to work your way into the club. I don't know a lot about this game. I did watch a review of it when it came out and I kind of passed it over. Um, I regret that now. Um, I have bought that one. It was on a little sale um, as part of the IGF Awards. So Betrayal at Club Low, really interesting one for the future. It also won the Seamus McNally Grand Prize where it was up against Neon White, Immortality, Case of the Golden Idol, Tunic, and not for broadcast. Um, I have played, let's see, four of those games. Uh, not for broadcast, I have not played, and Betrayal at Club Low, I have not played. Um, but the fact that those were in this category for the Seamus McNally Grand Prize means that I will look at them now. So I really do have a, a stacked slate for the podcast at the moment. Um, I don't know where I'm going to find the time to play all of these games, but I'm determined to do it. I want to bring you those reviews as always, and I want to see what all the fuss is about. I love, as I said at the start of the show, I love hearing from critical consensus. I love an awful lot of game reviewers who all give all of their attention, all of their time, and all of their effort to playing through these games and to developing their thoughts on them and uh, passing out all of their thoughts. Um, I think that games critics are a really good and valuable uh, resource and a great way to find out about games. So these kind of award ceremonies where critics and especially game designers are involved in the nomination process and the decision process, um, that's a really good sign for me. So I'm really excited to try out those games, um, especially Betrayal at Club Low, taking that, that big award, scooping that big award, definitely on my radar now. And just before we get into the, the Dredge review, let me just briefly mention, this is a patron-supported show. There is a community of patrons who... Um, have gone over to patreon.com slash gaming in the wild and signed up to support the show for a dollar a month or three or five. Um, and for that, they get um, a whole list of bonus episodes about music and other things and about games and deep dives and that sort of stuff. I publish a few every year. There are nine episodes that you get instant access to when you become a patron. Um, you can also come and join us on the Discord, which is my favorite place on the internet to talk about games. Would love to have you there. It's patreon.com slash gaming in the wild if you would like to show your support for this podcast and come and join the gang. Um, thanks very much to all my existing patrons. Thanks very much to my latest patron, iHenPi. And thank you very much to you, if that's something that you would consider doing. And with that said, let's move on and talk about the featured game of this episode, Dredge. Dredge. 
So Dredge is a brand new indie game, it's coming out on March 30th. As you hear this, it's about a week's time away. It's coming out for Xbox, PlayStation, Switch and PC. It's priced at $25.20. Um, it's coming out physically as well, there is a, a special edition that you can get for I think about that same price actually. Um, it was developed by Black Salt Games. This is a four-person studio down in New Zealand. So I hope that my podcasting friends down at Sifter HQ will be doing an interview with those developers. They tend to cover Antipodean game development down there. Um, it has an excellent soundtrack by David Mason, who made some really fittingly forlorn shanties and dirges uh, with groaning strings and uh, organs and all of that kind of stuff. It's, it's perfectly wonky and off-kilter. It has an almost uh, Tom Waitsy sort of style to it. It's very uneasy music. And I think it really helps to get the the atmosphere of this game across. Um, it's published by good old Team 17, who have been publishing games as far back as I can remember. Some of my early Amiga games were published by Team 17 uh, back in the 90s. Um, it has a Metacritic score of 85 on PlayStation, 80 on PC. Um, it doesn't have a How Long to Beat score as yet. Um, I think people have been saying it's taken them 9 or 10 hours. I spent longer than that. I think I clocked in at maybe a full 15 hours but that was with a fully upgraded boat um, and the majority of the side quests complete. So um, I overplayed this one based on the, the critical path. Um, this game, I think it's worth remarking, has a really, really good trailer. Uh, one of the best trailers that I can remember seeing. Um, it's an animated trailer. It doesn't show gameplay at all, which is normally something um, that I think we all frown on because we like to see what the game actually looks like. Um, but this one's an animation. It shows a little boat going out into stormy seas. Um, it shows a fisherman hauling fish out of the deep, taking them back to a, a, a little wind-lashed town where there is a pale, gruff, bearded fishmonger with a, a pallor to his skin and a downtrodden look who buys the fish that wetly flap down onto the counter uh, for some coins without even looking up. And then we see the fishing boat going out again and then catching more fish coming in again. The fish keep getting bigger and so does the payment until finally one night the, the fishing boat arrives back with a net of truly weird fish and slaps them down onto the, onto the counter. Um, there are three-eyed fish. There are fish that are fizzing with red, crackling energy. There are razor-scaled monsters. They are big, bulging, weird, mutated fish. Um, the fishmonger kind of freezes, stares down at the counter, glances up, and then pushes a huge wedge of cash across the table. Um, it's a perfect trailer. It um, encapsulates the loop of the game and the mood of the game and the weirdness of the game uh, really, really, really well. So I was very, very taken with that trailer. Um, I will put a link to that in the show notes if you haven't seen it. Um, um, the developers describe Dredge as a single-player fishing adventure with a sinister undercurrent. Sell your catch, upgrade your boat, and dredge the depths for long-buried secrets. Explore a mysterious archipelago and discover why some things are best left forgotten. What a great description. 
And my short take on this one is that it's a crisply designed mini open world fishing game with a murky, eerie atmosphere. Explore an odd, far-flung archipelago, dredge up strange fish and stranger secrets, and piece together the story of this precarious, haunted world. Um, and this is a game that is very, very thick on atmosphere, as you can probably tell from those descriptions. Um, you start as a fisherman who gets washed up on a tiny, creepy, wind-whipped island with a small fishing hamlet called Greater Marrow. Um, and as you um, come back to consciousness after your boating accident, the mayor greets you. He fixes you up with a little boat and puts you to work. He says, um, you might be here with nothing, but I'm going to give you something to get you started. Just go out and catch fish to feed the people of this town. Um, it's a little bit mysterious. It's a little bit off. Right away, you get that that really um, eerie feeling that you get in things like The Wicker Man, where you might be in like a, a rural community where all is not well, far from the prying eyes of the world. Very much that feeling here, very much um, the feeling of twitching curtains and eyes upon you um, and, and secrets that no one wants to talk about. Um, there is a mysterious lighthouse keeper who will sometimes come and talk to you a little bit and stuff like that as well. Um, and this is basically a vehicle game. So you explore the world only in a boat. You never get out of your boat. Um, docks and villages you can visit, but they are handled via really nice artwork and menus. So you'll see pictures of the rooms that you're in and so forth. Uh, characters have really nice portraits and dialogue. Um, and they give little grunts and noises as you talk to them just for a little bit of personality. Um, but you're mostly reading the dialogue as text. Um, shops are little screens that show their interiors with menus that allow you to purchase things, sell things, and so forth. Um, and the, the loop of this game is surprisingly compulsive. Um, I was not expecting Dredge to be quite as addictive as it was. I don't know what I was expecting, really. Um, I think the thing that had me hooked, no pun intended, about this game and the idea of it um, was that I didn't fully understand what Dredge was going to be, but I just really, really liked the look of it, really, really liked the premise. And we normally think of fishing games as like this cozy little thing. It's almost become a cliche, you know, the animal crossing fishing and every game having fishing. There are even jokes in games now about having or not having a fishing game. It was in the uh, the Psychonauts 2 documentary that they put a fishing game in and Tim Schafer had it taken out because he didn't want that game to have a fishing game in it. Um, so fishing games are thought of as, as very much that. Um, and Dredge is something completely different. Um, I do like vehicle games. I like the Forza game where you're just driving around the world and you're experiencing the world from the uh, the car. And Chorus, where you're experiencing the universe um, from your ship, uh, Starlink too. So I like games sometimes where you don't get out of the vehicle, where you just experience it, the traversal and the exploration and all of the mechanics from a vehicle. Uh, Dredge is very much that, but it's a little bobbing fishing boat this time. Lovely animations on it. There is a little uh, lamp um, and a dredging claw that hangs from the back of the ship, and they bob around. Um, they are blown by the wind. They move in in time with the waves. They get bigger as you go out to sea. It's a really cool little boat with a lot of personality, and you really do get to fix it up a lot as well. You feel quite attached to this little boat. Um, so off you go. You go bobbing out into the ocean. Um, the waves get bigger the further that you get from the little cove of Greater Marrow. And you see fishing spot bubbles. Um, so you can see these little churning spots where you know that fish will be. Uh, when you arrive at a fishing spot, there's an icon 
Um, if you have the right kind of rod, um, you can hit a button and get into a little fishing mini game. If you don't have the right kind of rod, you know you have to go and upgrade and get it and come back. Um, there are different kinds of fish like abyssal, coastal, shallow water, um, hot water, all of these different kinds of things. You have to get different rods and nets and equipment if you want to fish up all of the things that these oceans hold. Um, but the fishing minigame is pretty cool. You get like a, a spinning wheel on the screen. Um, it's mostly red, but there are a couple of small green spots. Um, and as this wheel is spinning, you have to hit a button, land it on the green spot. It keeps spinning. Um, hit the button again. Next time there's a little green spot. Um, some are harder than others. It starts off very slow and manageable. Um, it gets more interesting. It gets more difficult as you progress through the game. Um, this mechanic is kept fresh throughout the game. So even though you're doing a lot of it, it only takes a few seconds to catch a fish. Every time you hit one of those green spots, you reel in the fish. There's a little meter showing you how close you are to catching it. They don't really fight back. It's not like the you feel the fish pulling away and you have to time it or anything like that. It's just a very small, simple, almost like a rhythm game kind of feel. Um, and it really does work really well. You then get the fish that you have, have caught. You see a little picture of it. If it's a new fish, um, you get a little description of it that is entered into your, your logbook. Um, and then you have to puzzle it into your inventory. It's a bit, little bit like the Resident Evil 4 inventory, lots of little squares, lots of fish of different shapes. I'll talk about that more in a while. Um, and so once your hold is full, you head back to the village, um, you dock, you hold down a little button to uh, dock at the pier. Um, you're back in the village, you click on the fishmonger. There is that guy from the trailer, that strange, pale, hunched fishmonger, um, who will then pay you for your catch, talk to you about what you've caught, um, tell you some little tales. Uh, very sparing dialogue, um, but just the right amount to give you some colour, um, colour of the world, give you a little a feel for it. The characters are well written, they all feel like they have strong personalities. And this game is full of good decisions, like the fact that the boat controls incredibly well. Um, you just push in the direction that you want to go. It has a very small turning arc, which really helps to turn. Um, it has a little bit of momentum, but not too much, so you don't feel out of control. It is very, very maneuverable, and it feels perfect. Um, and that is huge for Dredge. I think that the boat feeling good is huge for Dredge, and it really helps the fishing game feeling good is huge as well. Um, and there are lots of little touches all throughout the game that feel good. For example, uh, when you are selling fish, you can sell them one by one by just going to your inventory and hitting square. You'll see them vanish off into the fishmonger's inventory, and the amount of money that you got flashes up on the screen. Um, or you can hold down a button to sell all of them at once. Um, and that's really useful because sometimes you might want to hang on to a specific fish for uh, quest reasons. Um, so being able to sell all of them just to get it quick and efficient is great. Um, but then also having the option to sell them one by one is perfect too. Um, and you start to amass a little bit of money. You can uh, start to see how you can spend it. There are various ways to spend it. Um, odds are you will bop some rocks in your little boat. You will damage your hull. Um, if you damage the hull all the way, I think you have three hits at first, um, then you, you have a game over. You go back to your last save point. Um, you can also upgrade your boat, of course. You can collect resources to further upgrade it. Um, you're warned against going out at night. You can just sleep at the dock and you see like a sped up 
um, clock animation. You see the sun going up and going down like a time lapse. And then you can go out again in the morning. Um, I think I was quite well behaved when I first started playing it. I heeded the warnings about the night. Um, but before long, you end up out at night anyway. The further that you get away from the dock in your small, slow-moving boat, um, the harder it is to judge how much time you'll need to get back. So you will end up out at night um, and things get weird at that time. Um, you have a puny little torch on your boat that will show you what lies directly ahead of you. Um, but strange things start happening. Like there is a little compass at the top of the screen to help you navigate and an eye appears on it, this searching eye with a red iris and it's searching for you. You don't know whose eye it is or what it wants, but there it is. Um, the closer that it gets to locating you, the more agitated that it will become. Um, you will see red light um, appearing over the water and that red light will gravitate towards you. And if it gets to you, then it contributes to that eye finding you all the faster. Um, your sailor starts to get tired and starts to have hallucinations like blurry prismic visual effects, like the whole screen starts to swim a little. Um, there are rocks that appear out of nowhere um, only when they go into the, the radius of your tiny lamp and you have to jam on the brakes and uh, veer away from them so as not to hit them. You will see pillars of light in the sky and shapes in the water and glowing fishing spots. And when you fish there, you start to get those weird fish that we saw in the trailer that have human teeth or many eyes or a pallid glow. Um, they're worth a lot more money, so you are incentivized to fish at night. But sooner or later, I think um, everyone who's playing this game is going to learn the hard way about why the nights around here are dangerous. And after a while um, of fishing a little bit, building up a bit of cash, getting settled into the game, um, you realize that there is another town just across from Greater Marrow. You can go there. It's an even smaller town called Little Marrow. Um, there is a trader there. There is a fisherman there who is looking for some things that you can go and find for him. Um, and they will tell you about the collector. There is another um, island nearby. But this one at first, this is something that I really love about this game. At first, it looks so far away that you think that there's no way that you could get there in time and get back safely. Um, but you build up the courage to do so. Maybe you build up your engine speed a little bit, things like that. Um, and off you go and you realize that that whole area where the game begins is really just like, it's like the Great Plateau of Zelda. It's um, a little lagoon just between Greater Marrow and Little Marrow. And it's really not big at all. It's absolutely tiny in uh, the scheme of the map. And it isn't a huge map, but the game does a great job at making you feel like it is, at making you feel... Um, tentative in stepping out into this this unknown, this oppressive unknown of the ocean. Um, but you do go across and you do get to meet this collector. That's where the story of the game really kicks into gear. Um, the collector tells you that he's looking for five lost artifacts and he'll give you great rewards if you can find them. Um, he installs a dredging um, claw on the back of your boat so that you can now dredge ocean spots where you can find uh, resources. You can find valuables to sell, like rings and coins and old chests and antiques. Um, you can find common resources like metal and wood that can be used to upgrade your boat across time. And then there are the five quest items spread across all the corners of this world. 
um, all of which are hidden behind strange tasks and puzzles in far-flung, foggy archipelagos all of their own. Um, and that's the meta structure of the game. So off you go out into the game to try and find these five artifacts. Um, and I really like how this search makes you slowly broaden your explorations and risk going further afield. Um, you are going to be forced into making some really dicey journeys um, to try and get to some of these places. Um, there are little archipelagos at each corner of the map. Um, the Great Marrow and Little Marrow and the Collector's Island are in the centre of the map. Um, and you are given directions and told which one to go to first, but you can do them in any order that you want. Um, you might suffer a little if you uh, if you don't follow the order or if you um, accidentally end up going to one of the later ones um, as, as it does get a little more tricky um, and there are more obstacles and... Um, things that are trying to hinder you that you will find as you get further out there. But I really like the way that the game um, encourages your exploration whilst also making you feel very oppressed by this, uh, this strange, nasty ocean that seems very much out to get you. And I think it is worth touching on, on the term Lovecraftian. It's a term that we hear a lot in games, um, and I'm not sure that it's always used entirely aptly. It is thrown around very, very easily. Um, but this, this term Lovecraftian really does belong here. Um, if you have read any HP Lovecraft, um, they are stories with a very specifically eerie quality to them. Um, they're very much about secrets um, that hide beneath the surface of ostensibly normal life um, like cults and like communing with uh, strange beings beyond the veil and all of that kind of stuff. Um, they touch on sanity and madness. Um, they touch on things that hang on the edges of vision and like unknowably vast grotesque horrors that lurk um, just in an almost paper thin uh, veil just, just outside of, of the real world. Um, they're very much about dream space and the waking worlds. Um, and other obsessions of that type. And you will find all of that here. Um, this is a very authentically Lovecraftian game, I think, and it really does um, turn all of that stuff up to 11. It serves it to you at a really nice rate as well, like the, uh, the rate at which you start to uncover a little more of what is going on in this strange place is, is really nicely done. Um, as you get out to the islands, you will meet people. You'll meet people that are maybe castaways on islands, little islands that you'll pass on the way, and you'll meet the de the denizens of some of the other the archipelagos strewn around the map, um, and they all have little stories of their own, and they're all clinging on for dear life in this uh, this bizarre world that you find yourself in. There is definitely a feeling that humanity is kind of hunkered down and cowering and just trying to get through it out here because something is going on that some people know about, some people don't, um, and the ones that are in the know are definitely keeping their cards close to their chest. Um, but let's talk about a few of the mechanics of the game as well. So time is an interesting one in this game. Um, time only passes either when your boat is moving or when you are fishing or when you are sleeping. So if your boat is still, the clock will pause. It gives you a moment to look at the map, maybe to go into your almanac and to look at information, to review the details of a, of a quest that you are on, um, to arrange your cargo, that kind of thing. So time pauses at those points, which is really, really helpful. Another great decision is nightfall is a really big deal in this game. And if you were 
actively discouraged from arranging the hold or looking at the map uh, because of an impending nightfall, that would be really, really stressful to the player. Um, so I think that that's really helpful, um, the time pauses that way. Um, the inventory is a huge part of the game, that Resident Evil style inventory. Um, you have a, a roughly oblong grid of uh, spaces. Um, some spaces are for specific things. For example, if it has a hook on it, then it can hold a rod, but not any space can hold a rod. It has to be on the, the port side. There are some spaces for nets on the starboard side. Um, at the aft of the, the, or the bow of the boat, you have a space for lights, which you can uh, upgrade. Um, it's only a couple of little squares where you can have lights there. And then at the stern, you can uh, put your engines and your motors and things like that. Um, and so it starts off with very little space being allowed. You can, you've only got enough space for this little peculiar put putting engine um, and a really weak light, uh, one kind of rod. Um, and as you collect uh, resources out in the world and you go and visit the shipyard and you build up some money, you can start to fill in these uh, upgrades where you drop metal and wood, you drag it across to the, the shipyard, and then you can upgrade the amount of space for rods, for engines, for lights, and the, the general amount of space in your boat. Um, so you really do feel like attached to your boat and you really do feel like you're, you're putting the work in. Um, and fish also come in very strange shapes and sizes like a cod might be a little right angled piece um, a flatfish might be a four block square an eel might be uh, five squares long and so at first when you have a really small hold you're really puzzling together what you want to keep what you want to throw overboard uh, what is worth more um, and you're going out fishing trying to fill the hold with all different kinds of fish before you go back to sell it all um, it's a real juggling act especially at first um, but it's a really fun part of the game, navigating all of this. It's, it's one of many small, interesting, um, engaging little puzzles that you take part in as you're going around the world. It's another one of these neat little mechanics that helps tie the whole thing together. And it's really fun getting to an optimal setup where you've got like a really strong light, where you've got a couple of different engines, um, and that comes into play um, in various ways. And getting the different rods that you need, for example, your coastal rod won't work if you're, if you're fishing for abyssal fish. Um, you won't be able to fish in volcanic waters if you've got a mangrove rod, like an, an anti-tangle line that can be used around the roots of trees and all that sort of thing. So you have to juggle your rods based on where you are as well. You have to upgrade, you have to fish, you have to get money, and then you have to upgrade the, uh, the rods themselves and upgrade the ship so that you have space for the right rods. Um, so there's a whole lot of resource management and juggling, and I think a lot of that hinges around the inventory, which is very well done. Um, you do also have your kind of menu system, which is like an almanac. You can see all of the kinds of fish that you have caught. Um, you can see holes of the, the empty pages where there are fish that you have not yet caught. Uh, you can see your quests and side quests that are like post-its pinned onto a board. Um, you can select them for more details on those quests. They get ticked off when you complete things. Um, you can see gaps if there are any quests that you haven't acquired yet, so you know how far through the game you are. Um, you also get reading material. Uh, people will give you books as you complete side quests and stuff. Um, you can read those books um, over time. It just happens naturally as you're going around the worlds. Um, and at the end of it, you'll get a permanent percentage perk on one thing or another. Um, the fish notebook is interesting in that each fish also has an aberration type, which is the, the nighttime version of that fish. Sometimes more than one aberration. 
Um, so you can see all different varieties of fish that have got like serrated skin or have got like just the human teeth was so weird, man. Or just these these razor-like tails and metallic looks or they they glow weirdly. So it's really fun uh, filling in the notebook. I'm, I'm not one for completionism, so I didn't go all the way with that. Um, but if you are, I think you would have a good time filling that out. There's also a place for uh, diary entries in the menu system. As you go around the world, you'll find messages in a bottle that start to fill you in um, on the story of two people that sailed around this world before you. Um, and you can slowly fill that in piece by piece. It's a really fun little uh, side story as you're traveling the world, and you can look at the map as well. Um, there is also the upgrade system, so you'll find um, spots in the ocean where you can see metal below the water, or you can see wood or cloth floating. Um, you know that if you dredge there and do a little dredging minigame uh, with a clanking metal ring um, that you have to time and kind of change the gear of to make it work, um, then you will pull out those resources. You can then uh, put them in the hold. They take up quite a lot of space. Um, you can put them in storage also. So when you get back to your harbour, any harbour or pier that you pull up at all around the world, you have a storage space so you can throw stuff in there to use it later. Um, fish goes off though, so you have to sell the fish quickly or it will turn eventually into stale fish and then into rot, uh, which you just have to throw away. There are also traps. You can buy crab traps, and as you're going around the world, you can throw them down into the water. If you come back later, there will be crabs in there, and um, you can take those out and sell them. Um, the traps will only last a few days, and then you have to pick them up and repair them back at the, uh, the shipyard. So that's a fun little mechanic. And all of these things come into play in some of the side quests. For example, you might find a researcher living in a lonely lighthouse, and she might ask you to go and find a bunch of rare specimens. Uh, maybe they only come out at certain uh, weather. Maybe they only come out at certain times of the day. Uh, maybe you have to use crab traps to find them, or maybe you have to use a trawling net that goes behind your boat as you are traveling to find them. Um, but the net will take up some of your rod spaces or some of your net spaces. So there's a lot of juggling. There's a lot of interesting little things. There's a lot of plates spinning all at the same time. And all of these different systems interlock together um, in a really good way. It gives you like a really good um, whole picture and it just keeps the brain working on many levels. I, I really enjoyed the, the pristine, crisp design. Um, I really enjoyed just seeing how all of these interlocking systems work together and how that affects the story, how that affects the progression, how that affects the exploration, um, and how it affects just the, the entire gameplay and the, the experience of Dredge. It's, it's very cool, very well put together. And as you explore further afield, you find places to moor up for the night. Um, these are just, sometimes they are desolate piers with empty campsites. You can find evidence of people that have camped there before. You can find messages chiseled into cliff sides or carved into the sand um, or scraps of paper. Um, they all start to just give you little clues. Um, these aren't really assembled anywhere. These are just things for you to remember, things for you to, uh, to read and to start to apply to the world that you're in. Um, there'll sometimes be um, sets of icons that you can find just on an abandoned island. Um, and if you remember that, if you try and figure out what those mean, even if they are simple pictograms of like a book floating above an ocean, uh, rocks breaking up through a lighthouse, all of these kind of things that you will find, they are doom-laden things and you're not quite sure what they mean, but they do all matter and they do all uh, factor into uh, figuring out what's going on in this world. 
You will also encounter a travelling merchant, a bright-eyed young woman who is somehow carving a living um, out here on the ocean. Um, she has a little pontoon, and you'll find one of those occasionally uh, when you come to a new archipelago. Finding it is kind of a priority, actually. Um, a good thing about these piers, anytime you find a pier, whether it is an abandoned island, it's creepy as hell, or whether it is one of these travelling pontoons, uh, you can sleep there, so you can pass the night um, and once you've found one of those, you feel like you have a foothold in that region of the map. Um, you're not going to be bumbling about at night, hitting strange rocks or uh, running away from something that's coming up at you out from beneath the waves or um, trying to escape uh, birds that will swirl around and steal things from your deck. And of course, that eye that is always searching for you by night. Um, so when you find one of those pontoons, you can uh, rock up there. You can sell fish there. You can fix your boat there. You can use uh, a wet dock to upgrade your ship, same as you can back at Greater Marrow. So it's just like a little outpost where you can fulfill uh, most of the harbour functions of the game. Um, really handy to have that around. There's also a shop so you can buy any supplies that you might need. Um, you end up with things like dynamite that you can use to open up closed areas and other little bits and bobs that will come in very useful as the game goes on. And I have to say, I really enjoyed the way that this game snowballs. Um, as you go from island to island, you, you will witness strange things. They all have their own strangeness to them. Um, they all have their own enemies. They all have their own um, things that will chase you, whether it happens to be... Um, roots that will try and hold down your boat, where there happens to be sea monsters, of which you will encounter several, um, especially by night. Um, even at night time, uh, what happens to you out on the ocean uh, will change from region to region in a really cool way. Um, they all have their own weather systems. Um, sometimes you'll get rain, sometimes you'll get mist, um, sometimes you'll get strange light or uh, strange things happening in the sky. Um, and they all have different topography and geography and personality. So it is a bunch of little biomes, I guess you would say, in the traditional open world sense. Um, and while most of this world is water, um, I like that too. I liked the feeling of uh, sailing from place to place, keeping an eye on the clock. Um, and you get into some real serious scrapes in this game. Like um, I remember times where um, you take damage in this game. Um, and when you take damage, whether you've hit a rock or whether you've been attacked by something... You will lose one spot in your hold, and you'll lose one point of your hull. I think the first hull has three points. You can power that up as you go on. Um, but the worst thing of all is losing the spot in the hold, because it's random, so it's a little bit of RNG there. Uh, you'll see a red cross appear on one of the squares in your hold. If that happens to be where your light is, then you will lose that light until you get back to a shipyard and repair it. If it happens to be where your engine is, then you will use, lose a corresponding amount of speed. Um, you can see data on all of these things. You can see data on the light about how bright it is. You can have several lights once you've expanded your boat. Um, if you lose your most powerful one, you're going to have a very dim bulb and not be able to see where you're going. Um, if you have an engine at the start of the game, you have only one engine. Um, if it happens that the hull damage arrives and that cross appears over your engine, then you are truly fucked. Um, the boat will just not move um, and you have to chug at a snail's pace all the way back to harbour. Um, as the game progresses, you will be able to fit more engines in there. Um, so if you lose one engine, maybe it's not the end of the world, but the damage really does take a toll on you. It takes toll on the gameplay. Um, at the start of the game, losing your engine is a full-blown disaster. Um, but as you move on through the game, um, it, it lessens a little, but you never feel really safe. Um, and I will say that there were times when I was out for the night trying to dredge up some strange treasure 
from a red glowing patch out in the middle of the ocean, was attacked by a tentacle, um, hit the waves, hit a rock that appeared out of nowhere, like a creepy phantom rock, and then came limping at dawn back into harbour with my boat just barely hanging together. And I really did feel like a a wild-eyed fisherman (laughs) who'd been out for too long, who'd been hallucinating, who'd seen strange things and came back with tall tails and holes in the boat and strange-looking fish. It really does give you that, that wonderful experience of being out on the waves um, and fighting off the madness of it all. So let's go through some of the good things and bad things of this game. Uh, Mostly good, as you can probably tell. Um, I will say that this is a clean game. Um, I didn't have any bugs, I didn't have any crashes, I had very, very few glitches. I think one in an entire 15-hour playthrough, and that was just the camera clipping through something a single time. Uh, Very, very clean game. Uh, Really, really well designed, really, really well polished, finished. Uh, just, Just great. Um, The mood of the game is wonderful. It's this heavy, windswept, far north, uh, wet fishing village feel. Um, there's a sense of dread that hangs over absolutely everything. There is a sense of unease and secrecy in the people that you meet. Um, they have great dialogue. Um, the character illustrations are on point. Um, the little grunts are really good. The sound is really good. The sound of the uh, the fisherman's uh, cleaver and the sound of slapping wet fish onto the dock after you've uh, brought them back or slapping them onto the deck after you've caught them. Um, the waves are really good and the weather sounds are really good. Um, the eerie sounds are really good, like the strangeness, the echoes, uh, foghorns echoing through the night, all of that kind of thing. Um, The atmosphere is just absolutely top-notch. The gameplay loop is wonderful. It's very compulsive. It's very addictive. You will find yourself hooked on this game if you decide to get it on deck, of course. Um, But it's absolutely compulsive. The exploration is fun. The fishing itself is fun. The upgrading. Um, I also really liked the progression. I really liked how mechanically improving your ship allowed you to travel further afield simply because you could be out for longer, you could get places faster, um, and how th- how the world felt huge and terrifying at the start of the game, and how as you power up, you really do feel empowered to go further afield. Um, I felt emboldened as the game went on in a way that I really liked. I felt like all of my efforts were paying off um, in a real gameplay sense. Um, every faster engine feels hard won and hull upgrades that will keep you alive for longer and that sort of thing. Um, I really liked the different variety of rods and how some rods were cross-use, for example, shallow and mangrove or volcanic water and coastal, and how as you upgrade your rods and you upgrade your hull, you can carry more rods until you can catch almost anything, and that just feels wonderful. Um, Getting places faster was just a great feeling too, just the sense of adventure as you set out on on an excursion is, is really good. It made me smile, you know. I love that all of the gameplay mechanics match with the premise. I love that you start with a rickety old boat and you have to catch fish to build it up. You can get better fishing gear to catch bigger fish to build it up even more. 
um, and to travel further afield, to be more equipped for what this world is going to throw at you, all of the gameplay and all of the mechanics just slot together beautifully. Um, the fishing and dredging minigames are actually, against the odds, really, really fun, and I'm not quite sure why. It's a, a simplistic little puzzle that you'll do a hundred times, but somehow I never got sick of it. Um, I really like the variety from biome to biome of enemies, of encounters, of characters, of choppy seas, and of um, having to navigate in different ways. Whether you are running away from something, whether you are avoiding large areas because of something down there, or whether you are trying to navigate very close quarters of ruins sticking out of the sea, things like that. Um, it's just brilliant. All of the biomes are wonderful. There is a nice feeling of risk and reward as well. Like sometimes you want, you might want to head back to base, but you've got a couple spots left that you could fill with extra fish, but night is coming, and so encounters are coming. Um, I really like that... Uh, that risk and reward sense of exploration. Um, the economy feels very balanced, like the wood and metal and cloth. You'll find it in many places, but it feels scarce, but not um, unattainable or not overly scarce. Like there's just enough to get you by. Um, and it's always a big deal when you find those spots because you know it's going to help you upgrade your ship. Um, there are some puzzles too, like needing to catch certain kinds of fish and to slot them into sort of Tetris-y, Jigsaw-style uh, pedestals that you'll find on some strange islands. That was a fun little variation. Um, and playing this pre-release was good in that I didn't have the option of Googling anything. So if there was a puzzle, like I needed a certain kind of fish and I wasn't able to catch it for one reason or another, it kind of forced me to just think about it a little bit more, to think, well, would I be using a net? Would it be near the surface? Would it be deep? Would it be out at night? And you have to try and look for clues, re-examine texts that you have found and just puzzle it out. And I'm really glad that I didn't use a guide on this. I think if there had been guides because the game was already out, I would have used them and I'm glad that I didn't. Um, all in all, I would say this is a very rich little game. It's a very rich little world. It's quite a small map, but it manages to feel huge. Um, it's really great when you get out into the ocean and the waves get bigger and your boat feels so small in such a big world. It really captures that feeling. Um, and the Lovecraft stuff of just the the vast monstrosities that are just on the edge of vision. I um, absolutely adore all of that. And I love how it was incorporated here. I loved exploring this world and I loved exploring this story. Um, as for bad stuff, um, there are a few things. I would say that you can't drop pins onto the map, so you just have to use the compass. Um, it's very easy to get turned around. I found myself opening the map screen a couple times too many, I would say, or just getting turned around on my way out of the dock and ending up heading in the wrong direction. Um, that might be a me thing. I, I do think that you have to think in terms of north uh, south, east, west, think in terms of compass direction and really keep your eye on the compass. If you just start heading towards a shadowy island far in the distance, it might just turn out to be the wrong one. Um, there are downsides to the gameplay loop. Um, the fail states, like if you've just spent, you know, 20 minutes dredging up a treasure and then after all of that work, you die just before you get back to harbour, um, you'll just reset to before any of that happened. Um, it's a little punishing especially because there is no health meter for the ship. So I was often not um, fully aware that I was only one hit away from death. And so maybe I would have been more careful if I had known and I've just bopped a rock on the way into harbour and lost all of my progress. But honestly, I don't have any better ideas on how to handle that. So maybe this was the best way. Um, those engine breakdowns that I talked about early in the game, like if you lose your engine when you are out on an adventure early in the game, it's just such a pain in the ass. Um, you move at about 5% of your speed. Um, you just have to chug all the way back to the harbour incredibly slowly. 
Um, it's just very, very, very punishing. I, I'm not quite sure um, how that was left in. Um, it is ameliorated as the game progresses because you can have multiple engines. So if you do lose an engine, then um, only that percentage of your speed is lost. You just go a little slower. But at the start of the game, when you only have room for one engine, um, losing your only engine and all of your speed um, dented my early game experience a little. And this last one isn't really um, a critique so much as just a tip, probably. Um, some kinds of fish can only be caught with certain equipment or in certain conditions, e.g. trawl nets at night or crab traps dropped below 20 meters, um, things like that. Um, and there are often little indicators telling you that, filling you in on what you have to do to catch them. But they are often very, very small, very, very discreet. Um, and if you are getting into a flow state, which I think that this game encourages, you start to navigate menus almost like second nature. You're just clicking through them very quickly, sell all the fish, go out again, catch more fish, do the do the dredging, do the fishing, back to base, um, organize your inventory, sell everything again. Um, and if you're doing this as you go through the game, you, you might miss a cue somewhere that tells you how to catch a certain kind of fish and just end up a little confused and going in circles and feeling like you're a little bit of a stalemate with the game. However, when I did slow down um, and just went into a more observant mode, away from that flow state style of play, the clues were always there. Um, they just weren't always very prominent. Um, you can feel that some, some care has been given to balancing how much is required of the player here. And they haven't asked a huge amount. Um, it's very much toned down, these kind of things. We have to observe conditions. It could have been very different. And I do get the feeling. I had a, a strange sense that there was perhaps more of that at various points, and it had been pulled back again. So the fragments of it that are left almost feel... Um, out of step with the rest of that flowy gameplay state, which has come to the fore through, I would guess, the uh, the tuning of the gameplay through the testing process and the process of developing that, that game. Just an instinct that I have, but the fragments that are left where you are required to do very specific things um, seem to come a little bit out of left field, um, given the, the overall state of the game. But as long as you keep your eyes open, as long as you stay observant, if you hit a wall, if you just review the information, review the clues, um, then I think you're all good. Um, and that's it for criticisms. I will say that this is an absolutely wonderful game. I had a great time with it. I admire this game in many ways. It's a game in which many decisions were made right. Um, the traversal is wonderful, the mechanics, the way they all fit together, and the lovely hallucinatory feel to it all, like being far from home in a, in a place where you are just so far from the world. You're somewhere where everything is different, everything is strange, anything can happen. Um, it's just a rabbit hole that keeps going down, and the conclusion is absolutely worth reaching. Um, please do get to the end if you play this game. It really sticks the landing. That's Dredge. I hope you enjoyed that review of Dredge. I, I really can't wait to hear from people who are playing this one. Such a wonderful game. Um, it goes straight onto my list of wonderful indie games that have come out this year, alongside Birth, alongside Season, 
just great games and I'm very excited to play all of the other ones that are coming up too. Um, Storyteller is now here, Have a Nice Death is here, um, so many games, uh, Cheer is here. I feel like we are really being spoiled for indie games this year um, and Dredge will certainly be one that I think is talked about come year end. Um, I played it on a PS5, by the way. I'm not sure if I mentioned that. Um, I don't know about Switch performance. Uh, it's probably worth checking that um, ahead of time. Wait for the reviews if you're playing on Switch. But on a PS5, it ran absolutely flawlessly. Um, if you'd like to come and tell me about what indie games you are excited about, uh, what you'd like to hear about next on the show, uh, please do come and find me. You can find me on Twitter as Gaming in the Wild, on Twitch, on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram, um, GamingInTheWild.com for all of those links. You're also welcome to come and join the Patreon, join the Discord community, uh, come and talk to us. We've been having little chats about everything that we're playing. People are still playing Chained Echoes, people are playing Hi-Fi Rush. We've just opened a new board for Chia. That will be our game of the moment for a while, and we'll be opening up a Dredge board when that game releases as well. Um, come and join us, patreon.com slash gaminginthewild. Um, I also really appreciate anyone who leaves a star rating on Spotify, who uh, reviews the show on Apple, who leaves comments, who leaves likes on YouTube, um, and if you share the podcast with a friend, send it to someone who you think might like it. I really, really appreciate that. It's great to, to grow the audience of this podcast. So I'll be back next week with a new episode. Take care of yourselves and each other, and bye-bye for now.